0: Amen. Thank you, Ashley. So our scripture passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, and then uh, the first two verses of chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible and you want to read along with us, you can. It'll also be on the screen behind me, and uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. Let's read together. It's a long, it's a long, uh, it's a long passage, uh, and there's a lot here, uh, but we'll try to make our way through it. Paul continues to write to the Ephesians. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, So that he may have something to share with any in need, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, slander, let it all be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. You say, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The truth of the gospel is spiritual dynamite. It is the power of God. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Not just to change persons, but to create a gospel community, a gospel culture that compels the attention of the world by its beauty and holiness. And Paul is laboring here in Ephesians chapter 4 to describe the characteristics of such a gospel community. And we've been looking at this for a number of weeks now. He said there is unity, not uniformity, but unity. And then last week we saw, but that's contrasted with, there's also diversity. So this unity and diversity and all of this going together, it's such a holy thing. It's such a beautiful thing that it takes a supernatural effort. It requires a whole group of people who have been spiritually transformed to be humble, gentle, patient, but also courageous and persevering and so forth. Okay? And that's what Paul, that's the the force of what Paul's teaching us here. Now, I've taken the sermon title, if you notice there, straight from a chapter in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis makes a helpful distinction. He says, Christianity is not niceness. He says it better than I could. He says, if, if you were to make a person nice, you have not saved their soul. And in fact, a whole world full of nice people content in their own niceness is not any better than a world full of wickedness. In fact, it may be worse. And here's what he says. He says, for mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people, God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And here the famous illustration, she says, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but rather it's like turning the horse into a winged creature that soars over fences which it could have never jumped before, okay? So here's the question before you and I this morning. As we just consider what it means for us to belong to this body of people that have been, that are to be being supernaturally changed by God. Nice or new? That's the question. Nice or new? As you think about your life, which adjective would you place upon it? Nice or new? Are you nice? Are you really nice? Or have you been made new? And that's really what this text is about. Now, there's a lot here. I was joking with my uh, family. I'm, I'm less prepared this week than normal. And that means that this might be a little longer than normal. My grandfather I told an apocryphal story of my grandfather. Somebody asked him to speak one time, and, he, and they said, how long do you need to prepare? He said, that depends on how long I'm supposed to talk. Uh, if I'm, if I'm going to talk for 30 minutes, I probably need a month or two. Uh, if it's going to be an hour, maybe a week or two. But if I can talk for two or three hours, I can go right now. So that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> There's... When, when you you know when you're ill prepared, sometimes there's length, and this is a lengthy passage. There's a lot here, so we got to get right into it, okay? And you see the necessity and the specifics and the power of putting on the new self, because that is what Paul is describing for us. This putting on of the new self, and we need to see the necessity of it, and the specifics of it, and then the power for it. All of those things are here in this text, along with a bunch of other stuff that we're just not going to be able to get to in detail, which makes me sad. But let's talk about first the necessity of putting on the new self, the necessity of it. There is, according to Paul here, a characteristic pagan and unbelieving way of life, and then there's a characteristic believing way of life or manner of life. Do you see that phrase, verse 22? Manner of life, pattern of life, general way of life. And a Christian is a person with a before and after story. A person who is living in that characteristically believing way of life. And no longer living in that characteristically pagan and unbelieving way of life. So let's look at each of those. First, Paul begins by describing what I'm calling a characteristic, characteristically pagan, pagan, unbelieving Gentile. That's the word, but that really means we could substitute secular, unbelieving way of life. And it's characterized by a number of things: by autonomy, and addiction, and spiritual blindness, and moral vertigo. And I'm piecing all of this together for convenience sake and for time's sake. But that really are, those are a few of the things that are there. Autonomy. He talks about these people being autonomous. And we know that the first sin was a desire to know apart from God, to decide between what right and wrong and good and evil for myself, to design my own truth and then retrofit <clears throat> the rest of reality to my own preference. That's the root of all sin. And it's the root of the problem here with these people, where Paul begins in Verse 17. But not only autonomy, addiction. This leads inevitably to addiction. John Piper's illustration is so great. He says, the universe of your soul was made to have God and God's glory at its center. With all the planets of your passions orbiting and held in place by the gravity of God. But when you throw God off, because that's what sin is. When you throw God off and try to replace him with lesser things, it causes chaos in the orbital system because nothing but his glory and nothing but his beauty can hold the lust of the heart in their proper orbit nothing else has enough mass to do that and so everything when you replace God everything becomes disordered you become overrun verse 22 with deceitful desires and that's that word that we talk about all the time epithumia you start to want things too much because you want God too little you start to want other things too much because you desire God too little, and it's why they're deceitful. He describes them as deceitful desires because they promise life, they promise love, they promise fulfillment, they promise safety, but they don't deliver. They, uh, they just can't come through. They bring death and disappointment and so forth. So as an example, romantic love is good as long as it remains a lesser good than God. But if you make it the ultimate thing and try to orbit your life around it and not God, well, that's when you get into trouble. Everything, verse 22, becomes corrupted, spoiled. These epithemia, wanting other things too much because we want him too little, spoils everything and it leads to another problem so there's autonomy and addiction there's also spiritual blindness because look at how paul describes this in verse 18 the futility of the minds being darkened in their understanding verse 18 ignorant these are all words that describe the way that we can become blinded to spiritual truth you you can't see you can't see the truth of things or even if you see it you don't feel it because there's a hardness there's a callousness keeps you from embracing and loving and living by God's truth. And all of that results in the end in what I call moral vertigo. You know what vertigo is? You lay down and the whole everything starts spinning. Well, you become so committed to your autonomy, you become so overrun with epithemia, out-of-control desires that Eventually, you get to the place to where you can't tell good from evil and then eventually you begin to mistake good for evil and evil for good because what's happened is, is in the process of this you have, according to Paul, given yourself up. Do you see that language? Given yourself up to sensuality and greed and every kind of impurity and what that means is you've just become overcome by it and become spiritually callous in the process. So, He goes to great detail to describe this characteristically pagan and unbelieving way of life. But then there's the characteristically believing way of life, beginning in verses 20 and running through 24. And the very first thing there that we see, which stands in stark contrast to the other, is that what is true of this kind of manner of life is that there's humility and teachability at the center of it. Because he says, look, that's not the way that you learn Christ, assuming you have heard and were taught. All of this language there is the language of the classroom. It's the language of school. When, when God comes into our life, one of the first things he does is he takes us to school. It says in verse 23, the result is that there's this, we're renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, this, this is very against the flow of epistemology and culture in our day. Doctrine matters. Catechism matters, right? Right? Renewal happens in the mind, Paul says. It's a matter of what you think. Repentance is, I'm thinking wrongly, I've got to think rightly. And as I begin to think rightly, then my whole life's gonna come in line with the way I'm thinking, right? So renewal happens here. It happens in the thought process, it happens, it happens in the way your mind works. You have to know what you believe so that, and know it with firsthand knowledge so that you can use what you believe, what you know to be like God. Because that's what he says here. Do you see it? So that we go to school, we begin to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and the result is is that we actually become people who are like God in righteousness and holiness. Verse 4, he says there. We're going to come back to those two words in just a minute. But here's what I want you to see. You have a pagan, unbelieving manner of life that's characteristic, and then you have autonomy, addiction, spiritual blindness, mortal virgo, and so forth, and then you have a characteristically believing way of life, humility, teachability, doctrinal integrity, righteousness and holiness. And Paul, very clearly, very clearly, he says, if you're you're a Christian, if you're a person who's believed and you're walking with Jesus, then that pagan, unbelieving manner of life is part of your past. It's the old you, right? It's the old you. And you have to put off that old you, that former way of life, and put on the new you, which God is remaking in his own image. And so the language there is, this is just this image of changing clothes. You don't wear workout clothes to a wedding. Or at least you shouldn't, okay? Who knows what the rules are these days? I mean, you, you probably shouldn't wear workout clothes to a wedding. You don't, you don't wear um, a business suit to go to the gym, Right, you wear the clothing that's appropriate to whatever role or whatever occasion you find yourself in, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying we have to put off, we have to change clothes, we have to put off that old characteristic way of, um, you know, an unbelieving manner of life, and you put on this new characteristically believing way of life. But here's the thing this is really because of the, the way the verbs work here and the tenses and all this kind of stuff, it's very clear that this really is the language of conversion. He's telling us we have to do something, but it's actually something that we can't do in our own strength. And so the change that is being described here by Paul, this putting off and putting on, is something that God actually must accomplish in his power, which is why Jesus said, and actually read it to us a little while ago, you must be born again. Jesus said, look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a person who believes, if you're going to be a person who obeys the commandments of the Lord, there is a change in the deep recesses of your life that is absolutely required for you to become a person who can do that. You have to be born again, and so the church, Christian, the church is full of Christians who are people who have been supernaturally touched and changed by God. They're not just becoming nicer and nicer. He's making them new. So my favorite illustration of this is Eustace the dragon in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you know the story, as a part of uh, Lewis's corpus in uh, the Narnia books, on one of the islands where they are exploring, there was a dragon that was dying guarding a cave full of treasure, and uh, Eustace, who's this just super unlikable character, he's annoying, and you really grow to hate him as you read the book, and if you've seen the movies, he's even worse in the movies. When he was sure the dragon was dead, he snuck into the cave and began to load his pockets with the dragon's treasure, uh, and finally fell asleep, and when he woke up, he realized that at some time during the night, he had been turned into a dragon. And there was a bracelet that he had put on his arm that as he had been transformed into a dragon had grown and was cutting off the circulation of his arm and and very painful, extremely painful. Uh, And in that moment, Aslan came to him and and, uh, told him, follow me. And because he was in such pain, he followed Aslan to a bubbling well and told, Aslan told him that he had to undress first and then jump in the water and that it would soothe his aching wounds and so it describes Eustace he goes about beginning to scratch himself and as he did so the scales began to fall away and so he scratched a little deeper and the dragon skin began to peel away and just as he went to step into the water he looked down into the water and there in his reflection he saw that he was still a dragon. He was just as ugly and scaly and dragonly as before and so he went through the whole process again but it didn't work that time either. And then a third time, and he's starting to lose heart. And then Aslan spoke to him and he said, you will have to let me undress you. And here's the way he described it. He said, he just laid down. He said, the very first tear was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began peeling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself, and there it was, lying on the grass, and then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and after that, it became perfectly delicious, and the pain in my arm was gone, and then I saw why I'd been turned into a boy again. Now what's the point? Mere improvement is not enough. Whatever work you might be able to do on your own heart and your own strength, it's not enough. It doesn't go nearly deep enough. We need, we need a greater work than just to be made nice people. We need to be made new. And only God can make you new. And that's what we mean by the word conversion. And in, in, in Christianity, we believe that as we believe, we go through a death and a resurrection When you believe in Jesus, you go down into death with him just as he did, and you're raised into newness of life just as he was, a death and a resurrection. And afterward, what Paul says, and what we read a minute ago, is that the old is gone and the new has come, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? New creation. So he is making us new. And if he has made you new, then the moral imperative here of this passage is to keep putting off the old and keep putting on the new through repentance of faith throughout the whole rest of your life you keep believing and acting like the new you that God has already made you to be and not the old you that you no longer are does it make sense you have to keep being who you already are you have to keep believing to be true what he's already what he said is already true you have to keep considering yourself dead even though it doesn't feel like you're dead to sin And considering yourself alive to God, even though it may not feel like you're alive, that's the moral imperative. You be who you already are. You keep believing and acting like the new you and not the old because there's this necessity of putting on uh, the new self. But secondly, then he moves on to give us specifics about what that might look like in our lives, beginning in verse uh, 25 and down to the rest of the chapter. Specifics. And there are five concrete examples, and I'll just list them for you, and then we'll pick up a couple to make application from because that's all we have time to do this morning. He says, verse 25, five concrete examples. Don't lie. Instead, tell the truth. Verse 25, don't lose your temper, number two. Be sure your anger is righteous. That's verse 26. Verse 28, number three. Don't steal, rather work and be generous instead. Verses 29 and 30, don't tear others down with your words, but build them up. And then number five in verses 31 and 32, don't become embittered, but sweeten your relationships with kindness and forgiveness. Now, there's no way to get through all of that material, so let me just make some general observations. First, as you read through it, as we did a minute ago, notice that in each example, there's a negative and a corresponding positive, okay? So look at verse 28, for example, let the thief no longer steal, so that's the negative, but rather... Work and be generous. Or in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, that's the negative, but only such as good for building up. So there's the positive. Don't do this, but instead do this. And so for us that means that there are old habits that we have to first unlearn and then replace with new habits. This is the the way this putting off the old and putting on the new works. Old habits that we have to unlearn in order to relearn new habits or let me say it this way, borrowing from Eugene Peterson, spiritual transformation requires a lot of negative space, a lot of not doing, a lot of not saying, right? Sometimes spiritual maturity is a matter of not doing things we're doing and not, doing, and not saying things we're, we're, we're accustomed to saying. I think he makes a good point. The negative, negatives are important. He says, what we don't do, what we don't say, leaves room for the main action, God's action, When we do too much or when we talk too much, we can get in the way of what God is doing. And our doing and talking can be a distraction. Okay, so negative space, but at the same time, spiritual transformation is not all brakes and no steering wheel. As Calvin Miller said, we don't become spiritually vibrant because of the things we quit. But spiritual growth occurs by ever starting, starting, starting every day some creative new thing. So we unlearn old stuff, we learn new stuff. We resist old habits and rhythms and routines we embrace new ones. This is, this is ultimately the work that we're called to. But the second thing is notice how all five of the examples are about how we relate to one another. Did you, know, did you see that? John Stott made this point as well. He said, you cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. The fruit of faith is Love. The test of gospel orthodoxy is gospel community. And so the two words in verse 24, righteousness and holiness, that I told you we'd come back to. Righteousness and holiness. Holiness is personal piety before God. It's the dynamics of your personal relationship with God. Righteousness refers to your relationships with others, and they are connected. Always connected. Always they go hand in hand, which is why Dorothy Day said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. In the Greek, it is uh, very clear. It is the righteousness and holiness, and there's this construction of the truth. And the two words, when you have that construction, those two words, it means that the two things come from the same root. So righteousness and holiness of the truth the righteousness and holiness that come from the truth. In other words, if you believe in Christianity, it will significantly impact your personal relationship with God, but at the same time, it will also significantly impact your relationships with other people. There is no truth without love. And this is about neighbor love. Now let me drive this home by drawing your attention to verse 30 because it's my favorite part of the text. Paul there warns to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I Just just sit with that for a minute. Did you know you can grieve the Holy Spirit? Let me explain what it means. It is the Holy Spirit's job there in verse 30 we're told to get us to the day of redemption, the day where we stand before God with our true glory selves revealed. The image of God in each of us means that we will at the end of all things One of two options. Either become a horror and a corruption such that you now only see in nightmares or else a beauty that if you could see it now, you would be tempted to worship it. And that's true of even the dullest and the most uninteresting people that you meet. If you're a Christian, here's what Paul's teaching us. If you're a Christian, the judgment day will not just be a day of judgment. It will also be a day of redemption. The stain and the wrinkles of your sin will fall off and your glory self will come forth and everybody will finally see you for who you really are, for who you've always been, for who God already knows you to be, as God has already seen you. And the Bible says to look at you on that day will like, we'd be like trying to look at the sun with no sunglasses, that you will shine shine with such beauty and such radiance that it will hurt to look upon you. And here's what it says. It says, it's the Holy Spirit's job to get you to that day. That's the whole goal of his ministry in your life is to bring out all of that beauty and all of that glory ahead of time to get you ready to stand before God so that you can shine like the sun in his presence. It's his job to get you to that day. And he does it by the ministry of encouragement. He is the paraclete. He is the encourager. And, he is, and that means he has a particular vision of the person that he is making of you. And through kind, encouraging, enduring presence. And kind, encouraging, thoughtful words. He's moving you along towards the day of redemption. And we are meant to join the spirit in that work in one another's lives. So Tim and Kathy Keller describe marriage and I think it could be applied to friendship and all other relationships within Christianity. He says, they say in marriage what you're looking for is a good piece of marble. Everybody wants a finished product but there is no such thing. So they say, when you're, when you're thinking about getting married, you should, look for, you should be looking for a good piece of marble. In other words, in marriage, you see something in the person that other people don't see. And then what you do is, by marrying them, you commit yourself to a lifetime of bringing it out, of joining the Holy Spirit in the work, of beautifying that person through cherishing and kindness and confrontation with the truth and so forth. So here's the thing. If that is what the Spirit does, and if he means for us to enjoy him, then we grieve him when we fail to treat one another with the same kindness. C.S. Lewis refers to it as awe and circumspection that are proper to the image of God in each of us. We grieve the spirit when we are careless with one another and through unkindness undo the work that he is doing. Do you know that? Do Do you realize that parents... Mothers, do you realize that with your children, do you realize that with your friends, that you can, through carelessness, and particularly careless words, undo the work through unkindness that the Spirit intends to do? We do it with our words, if they corrupt, if we tear the people down instead of building them up. We do it by being selfish, which is the opposite of kind or hard-hearted or unnecessarily harsh. We do it when we hold grudges instead of forgiving one another, and also when we fail to speak the truth to each other and call one another to imp- repentance and instead just sweeps in underneath the rug. So this is heavy stuff, right? And let me round it out and say it like this, because you read, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, walk in love, and so forth, and you might come away with the wrong impression, what you could call love without truth. I've already said there's no truth without love, but there's no love without truth either. Christianity is not truth without Love, but it's not love without truth. It is truth and love, love and truth. And this comes out in a couple of places because look, it says an important component of doing what I just described is knowing how to best use your anger. Notice the instructions about anger in verse 26. It doesn't say, don't be angry, be kind instead, right? What does it say? It says, be angry and do not sin. What that means is is that anger then is not the opposite of love. Anger is an important part of love. It's an expression of love. If you love someone and they're being taken advantage of, or if you love someone and they're ruining their life with bad decisions, then anger is the right response. It's the moral response. It would be sin to not be angry. So anger is good. It's necessary when it is rooted in love, when it is righteous. Good anger is good. But clearly there's also bad anger, sinful anger. And so we have to ask the question then, well, what makes anger sinful? And the one indication we get in verse 26, look there. It says, um, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So excessive anger is bad. Nursing your anger and letting it intensify as it works its way into the root structure of life. Really bad. Notice what it says. What does it say? Don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. If you nurse the wounds and the hurts that other people have created in your life, if you nurse those things, if you go to bed with them on your heart and you wake up with them even sunk down deeper into your life, you are giving Satan an open door into your life. And then when it actually comes to the surface, it's going to be bad. So Paul Miller says, you ask yourself a couple questions. When you think about your anger, you say, you know, why am I angry? Is it for good reasons? Is it because of love? Is it righteous or is it for bad reasons? Am I just frustrated? Is it because I'm hurt? Is it because I'm not getting my way? Is my selfishness being thwarted? And then you ask, you know, okay, well, how am I expressing my anger? Is it appropriate? Is it measured? Is it too much? Is it too hot? And you start to ask some really good questions because anger is an important part of love. But it can quickly go bad. And then the last thing, I told you, kind of all over the place because there's just so much here. But I want—I don't want to leave this part without also calling to your attention. Notice the role of words. Do you notice how important words are? Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace. Words can destroy or they can build. Back up in verse 15, Paul says that the church builds itself up by speaking the truth in love. Okay? So the absence of truth-telling results in spiritual immaturity and unhealth. And that's true in a church. It's true in a family system. It's true in parenting and child relationships and so forth. But words have great power, so we have to take great care to be encouraging. Always critique gently and encourage fiercely. You need both, but if the critique is fierce and the encouragement is gentle, our condemning hearts will get the best of us. You've got to be wise. Our words should fit, it says. They should be wise. They should be well-timed. Not too few, not too many. Probably in person and not through text or email. Can I get an amen? Don't... Teenagers, don't break up with somebody on text. That's just not right. Don't do that. And always, 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 always gracious. You can confront a person graciously, it doesn't have to be harsh. So that's what he says always gracious, because there's a lot at stake awe and circumspection with one another is the rule with our anger and with our words so there's some of the specifics man there's a lot there right and I don't know that I did a very good job of getting us through that but nevertheless we've got to keep moving on and we got to see there's the necessity of this newness of life of putting on this new self and the specifics all of these things this great chunk of of instruction here in verses 25 through 32 and so forth. But then thirdly, we need to see the power for living from the new self, not the old. It's God's power, as I've said, bringing us from life to death that produces the change. That's conversion. But what about the power for ongoing change throughout life? What about sanctification? What about growing in likeness day after day? And I want you to just zoom in on a small phrase at the end of chapter 4, verse 32, where it just says, as God in Christ. Do you see that? As God in Christ. And then he repeats a very similar phrase in chapter 5, verse 2. We, we walk in love, he says, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So, as God, as Christ, that, that is the key. That's where I want you to, to land this morning. Every behavioring problem is a believing problem. Every defect in sanctification is, in reality, a loss of bearing with respect to justification. So, the power for ongoing change is what we've already said and labored over. The power for it is to be rooted and grounded in God's love. Verse three, I mean, chapter three, verses seventeen through twenty. All the instructions of Ephesians four through six are connected to the theology of Ephesians one through three, right? Because the power to do the commands in Ephesians four through six is believing the truth of Ephesians one through three. So the sin underneath every sin is gospel forgetfulness, which means the power for change. Is gospel remembrance. And you see this in the text in a couple of places. But one of, the, one of the main ways is in Paul's use of, of a simple word, therefore. Nine times in Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul says therefore. Twice here. Notice in verse 17, he begins. It's actually now in the ESV, but it is the word therefore. It could be therefore. And then beginning in verse 25, as he transitions from section to section. Twice. This word therefore it's his way of saying you can't do without the doctrine it what i'm saying to you is just an implication of what i've already said to you because english teachers will tell you when you come across a therefore what are you supposed to do see what it's there for right so he's saying i'm 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 now making an implication of what i've already said to you so eugene peterson has this great analogy about rock climbing, how near his home in Montana, there's a 2,000-foot slab of smooth granite that people climb, uh, and they even, I mean, this, they even sleep in hammocks that dangle there like cocoons a thousand feet in the air. I could give you a thousand things I'd rather do. I'd rather jump into the snake pit in Indiana Jones with all those snakes than dangle 1,000 feet. I don't sleep good in a tent when it's on the ground. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But he says it's—he says it's not as dangerous as it looks. It looks terrifying, but it's really not as dangerous. And of course, people die doing it, but typically it's because they've been careless. He says it's not as dangerous as, they, as it looks because because the climbers use pitons. Do you know what a pitten is? A pitten is a sturdy peg that's made of metal that. The climbers hammer into the rock they hammered into the to the rock face that that holds you in place so that you weave your your ropes and such through that so even if you slip in theory you won't fall because the piton has you securely hammered into the rock now he's writing about this and he said paul's their force here are like pitons that make love possible We hammer ourselves into the rock of gospel doctrine as a protection against moods and weather, miscalculation and fatigue, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying every time you see a therefore, it's like a that is that's hammering you into the rock of gospel doctrine. John said in his letter, we love because he first loved us. In other words, the power for your love for others is his love for you. Now, I know you have lunch plans with your moms, but let's just take a couple examples as we conclude this morning the most obvious one is there in verse 32 where he starts to talk about forgiveness where he says be kind so forth forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you so here's here's the teaching there if you're having a hard time forgiving someone it's because you're forgetting just how much God has forgiven you The power to remain kind and tender-hearted and forgiving is to constantly be reminding yourself of the way that God has treated you. When you were still his enemy, he loved you. He died for you. When you were at your very worst, he loved you the very best. When you deserved death and hell because of your hard-heartedness and sin against him, he did not condemn you. Instead, he stood in your place and took upon himself your sentence on the cross so that you might be forgiven and freed. Sending himself to hell in the process. And so what the Bible would say is, however, however someone might have sinned against you, it is nothing in comparison to the sin that you've committed against him. And how did he treat you? He forgave you. He, he died for you. He put himself in your place. He gave himself up for you. So then how do you treat those who've forgiven you? See how that logic works? So the gospel is the power for forgiveness. But the skill is to learn how to uncover where you've become disconnected from the truth. The skill is to learn how the places where your heart has disconnected from the power source of God's love for you so that you can reconnect it, so that you can re-believe or believe more deeply and then become, in the way you're living your life with one another, what you say you believe by forgiving others just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Does it make sense? Let's do one more, and then we'll be done. Truth-telling, speaking the truth in love, which is an important part of this whole passage. See, if you're not resting in as God in Christ for you, if you're not resting in that, then then what will be happening? You will be you will remain radically insecure in the inner parts of your life, and as a result, you'll probably be too afraid to speak the truth. There'll be no truth. I mean, you just won't be willing to speak the truth. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. You might lose the relationship, and because you're not resting in Christ's love, you're looking for other people to love you. You're trying to draw your you're, you're trying to source your life and draw your own security and love from the way they love you, and you're not won't be willing to risk that. But here's the other thing. A lot of times that insecurity, what happens is it begins to show itself in pride, in fierce, defensive assertion of your own goodness, which will cause you to not speak the truth of others. It will cause you to be critical of others. You'll speak the truth, but not with love. You'll use words to tear others down and elevate yourself. See, the kind of person required by this passage is someone who, on the one hand, is completely secure, and therefore... There's a strength to them, an immunity to the fear of man. They don't live from the approval of others. They need other people less and less so that they can love them more and more. They can say hard things, but there's also, so there's there's a strength, there's a security, but there's also a humility and a softness so that when they do speak, it's never harsh. There's always grace, and here's what I want to say to you. Only, only God's love for you and Jesus can make you strong and soft like that at the same time. Because it's all grace. It's riches of grace. And because it's grace, here's the good news this morning. Because it's grace, you're absolutely safe. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are safe in his love. It is all grace. You're absolutely safe. But because it's all grace, it's all gift. There's nothing for you to feel proud of. And grace makes you gracious. Grace makes you gracious. Angry at times, sure, but still gracious, Speaking the truth, confronting others, of course, but always gracious, not bitter, or wrathful, or clamorous, or slanderous, or malicious. Those things, Paul says, and I wanna reiterate, have no place among us. We put them away, we put them all off, and we put on grace. Grace is not just a doctrine, it is not a philosophy, it is not an idea, it is a person. Which is why Paul says it this way in Romans 13, 14, Clothe yourselves. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the new man. And he can make you new too. Not just nice. New. As the old hymn writer said, "'Twas grace that quickened me when dead. "'Twas grace my soul to Jesus led. "'Grace brings a sense of pardon sin, "'and grace subdues my lust within. "'Grace." reconciles to every loss and sweetens every painful cross defends my soul when danger's near by grace alone i persevere amen pray with me if you would so father thank you thank you for being so good to give us this word for being so patient and kind with us as we try to learn it and so patient and kind with me as I try to teach it, as I labor in these things and often say too much or without the passion that is requisite or without the wisdom that is needed, we thank you that in spite of all of that, in spite of our dull hearts, in spite of of our ears that don't hear and our eyes that don't see and the preacher's words that often don't convey the truth they're meant to convey, that somehow in the mystery, in the mystery of your working in our lives you come and you make these things come true and come home to our hearts and so we ask that you would do just that and that the result would be that we would experience this morning new power to be putting off the old man and putting on the new there's some in the room who would say i i need that definitive experience i need lord jesus for you to come and to kill off the old me and to raise the new me from the grave in an act of radical grace. And I pray that would be true this morning, that you would do that among us. But then for some of us, we need the wisdom and the strength to live, to live as the people you have already made us to be and to stretch ourselves into the faith and repentance that is desperately needed as we are confronted with the words from this text. So whatever the case might be, work in our hearts now as we sing uh, the gospel truth over one another yet again. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So whatever work is in front of you this week, whether it's the work of parenting, mothering, just work, the work of husbanding, befriending other people, being a good neighbor to the people who live around you, everybody you come in contact with, remember the image of God in them is such that it demands awe and circumspection of us because there's incredible dignity Uh, in beauty in every single person we come across and we should treat them as such. But also written across every life (laughs) is the fragile, right? Or the veiled, veiled Christmas story reference. Fragile, fragile. Because of sin, we are fragile and we need to be handled with care. And it is our job to do so. But if you're wondering, oh, what does the wisdom or the strength or the patience or whatever you might need to do that, where does that come from? You look to Jesus. If you have him, you have all you need. His love is so great that it can turn you into a great lover of people. So receive this word of benediction as the promise that he will love you even in making you a person who loves others as he sends you to do just that uh, as we go now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen, God bless you. Happy Mother's Day, go in his peace.